You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I guess one way of explaining that is that we're celebrating the 50th birthday today of the Space Needle in Seattle as a city, right? And um, when the Space Needle back in 1962 was established, someone in the media said that it looks like a UFO on stilts. And as I was learning a little bit more about it, what I realized is something I didn't know is that, do you know that the whole UFO craze started in Seattle? Maybe you remember that. I don't know. But it was in 1947 that there was the first UFO sighting uh, that kind of hit the popular consciousness. A a little disc was spotted off of uh, Mount Rainier. And thus began our fascination with uh, extraterrestrial life and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And we've got our own sort of antenna right here in Seattle. By the way, how many of you were in Seattle in 1947? Let me see. Come on. Yeah. Look at this. So look around, because any one of these people could have been part, part of that from that ship. We actually haven't discovered. <laughs> We're still doing our research to find out who landed at that time. They may well be worshiping with us. So here's a question for you. I mean, what if? What if one of your neighbors one day pulled a ray gun on you and stuck it in your back and said, take me to your leader? What would you do? Kind of a bizarre question, but don't we all know that that's exactly what an alien would do if they were to land and they're supposed to ask, take me to your leader. And what would you, how would you respond? I think it's an important question for us to uh, consider over the next several weeks. And let me tell you why, why the question is important. You and I are called as a community to share hope in Jesus Christ. And, And we will never share hope if we attract attention to ourselves. We will only share hope insofar as you and I are able to attract attention to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is our leader. So what is it that we would do if our neighbors came to us and said, take me to your leader, show me Jesus Christ among us today? Now I know our neighbors are not aliens. Um, in fact, as I look out on you, I begin to wonder whether we really aren't the aliens and our neighbors are the normal ones. And you know, that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, for example, in the book of Hebrews, in the 11th chapter, the writer gives us a whole list of, of people of faith throughout the generations in the Old Testament. And then he says of them, all these peoples admitted that they were aliens and strangers. They were willing to admit it. We're the aliens. Likewise, Simon Peter, as he writes his uh, letter, his first letter, so we call it First Peter, uh, begins his letter by addressing his audience as aliens scattered abroad. Uh, that's who we are. And it makes sense if you claim to have hope because a love literally from out of this world has made contact with your life, then there is a kind of an alien gap between you and almost anything else. Because you have real hope in your life. And so the question really is, how do we interpret that love for our world today? How do we interpret that love for the people in our lives right around us? Maybe even the person who's sitting next to you. 
Well, that's the question that we're going to preoccupy ourselves with. And if you're visiting with us, you should know that over the next seven weeks, our small groups and others are engaged in a loving our neighborhood. Uh, we have over 60 projects that we know about and many more that we don't know about uh, where our small groups and uh, members are loving their neighbors. But you know what would be so sad to me if at the end of that six-week period, Pentecost comes around and we're debriefing and celebrating and our neighbors are thinking about, what was that all about? And they say to themselves, wow, what a great group of people. Or, wow, what a great church UPC is. To me, that'd be truly tragic. What my prayer is that at the end of those six weeks, our neighbors, in some sense, will say to themselves, wow, what a great Savior. They'll perceive Jesus Christ in all of his glory in some way through what God has done, through what Jesus has done uh, through us. So how do you take your neighbor to your Savior, to your leader? Well, that's what we'll be talking about as we study together this uh, book. And the book that we're studying, by the way, is Ezekiel. And you go, oh, no, you're kidding me. You know, Romans was such a delight. Why would he take us to Ezekiel? Then I know some of you have tried to study Ezekiel in the past, and, and many of us don't get much past chapter 1, you know. And chapter 1, is, if you've read it before, is this vision of uh, eyeballs on the rim of a wheel and spinning wheels. And I think Ezekiel invented the UFO, the flying saucer, actually, right there in that chapter. As he's got this vision, you go, you know, I think I'll go to some other book, maybe the Gospel of John. But what you miss, what you miss if you miss the book of Ezekiel is a testimony to a God who calls forth a community that shows forth its Savior. Because the book of Ezekiel holds together, as far as I can tell, on a refrain that is repeated again and again and again. More than 70 times there's a refrain in the book of Ezekiel. And you know what it is? Then you will know that I am the Lord. There's a variation. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Uh, theologians call it a recognition formula. That is to say, God is going to give this community something that when they participate in that gift, they and their neighbors will know that God is the Lord and that he's present. Is that not what we need? Is that not our prayer, too, as we share hope in Jesus Christ? And we look at the book of Ezekiel and we go, it's Old Testament, it's so confusing, it's scary. Jerome said no one should ever read that book until they're 30 years old. Actually, he said the Jews said that. Uh, but we're going to read it because as I've been studying it recently, the parallels between what happened in Ezekiel's day and what is happening in our day are absolutely striking. Let me just give you a little bit of, it, of a background on the book by way of uh, um, giving, making some of these connections. First of all, we are aliens, and Ezekiel was an alien. A young man, 25 years old, when he is deported. In Jerusalem, training to be a priest, picked up by the scruff of the neck at the point of a blade, dragged 500 miles away from Jerusalem to Babylon, set down in a neighborhood of a mighty uh, empire, the imperial capital, a civilization much older than his own, much more sophisticated than his own, far more powerful than his own. And here's this little Israelite young man. He's in a culture that does not particularly care about Israelite religion. They're not asking him, what must I do to be saved? 
And you know what? They're not asking us anymore either in our day. You and I have come to understand that we live in a post-Christendom era, even a post-denominational era, people say, in some ways. And many people are not with us this morning worshiping uh, because they've forgotten that Sunday morning is about anything other than the New York Times and Starbucks coffee and trying to get the, the Dreamliner back on production schedule, right? Yesterday, I went over to the campus here, and uh, UW is celebrating 150-year uh, birthday. And I, my wife and I rode our bikes over there. We're wandering around. It seemed like everywhere we went, we met, ran into this guy named Don Dybert. Do you know Don Dybert? He's one of our members. One of my pastors not supposed to have favorites. He's my favorite, but I don't have favorites. But it would be Don Dybert. What an amazing guy. Everywhere I went, I thought, Don's got so many friends. Turns out he's just meeting strangers and, to, and engaging them in conversation. And uh, the last time we ran into him, uh, he was talking to two staff people. And I think he'd met one of them earlier at a car raffle, so they were talking about cars, and, and we got talking about cars, and we were laughing and joking together. And so at one point, Don goes, so, hey, where do you guys worship? And I thought, oh, no, here we go. <laughs> you know? And one of the guys, he said, well, jeez, um, you could tell the question caught him off. He said, I, I guess I worship in my living room. And Don goes, that's great, but you could come and worship with us. We've got this church. It's just up the road here. It's called University Presbyterian Church. We'd love to have you worship with us sometime. And they seem to appreciate the invitation. And I thought, what a great question. What courage Don Dybert has. But also, not at all surprised at the answer. Because people aren't looking for worship in our day. Well, guess what? The people around Ezekiel, they weren't interested in his religion either. And his religious world had absolutely imploded. Five years into his ministry. He's got a 20-year ministry uh, in Babylon as a prophet. Five years in, word comes that Jerusalem has fallen. The Babylonians have conquered Israel, Jerusalem. The temple is burned, destroyed. So now they're a church, that the people of God, they've got no budget. They've got no buildings. And, and, and you think that by the story of the Old Testament or the Bible is just about grinding to a halt right here. And yet here's a people to whom God speaks his word. And, and that dares to dream dreams. I mean, that's what Ezekiel is. It's about a community that engages a sanctified imagination. That envisions new possibilities. A way of being the people of God without all the things that were so familiar to them. And I think that's where we are as well. And, and we're a community. You're a community. That knows it's got a great history. You, you're hungry to engage the world in mission. And you know that God is faithful and he's in our midst. And so what's it going to look like? Well, I think the book of Ezekiel is God's invitation to us now to re-envision our future as his people. And I want to, therefore, um, begin this week by looking at this first vision. You're going to see in each of these visions there's a real tangible metaphor. And our metaphor this morning is a scroll. And it's a scroll that Ezekiel is invited to eat. And I want to give you right here at the beginning um, my thesis and my argument, which is this, that God reveals himself in empathy. God reveals himself in empathy. I want you to wrestle with what that might look like for us as a church and for you as an individual. And uh, to do so, let's look at this scripture passage fairly briefly this morning. Would you open up your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 2? And if you're like me, yes, you'll need the page number. It's uh, page 673 of the Pew Bible. Ezekiel chapter 2. Let's read this last paragraph starting at verse 8. And we'll read the first paragraph of chapter 3 down to uh, verse 3. Ezekiel 2, 8 through 3, 3. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this word of the Lord together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. 
Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. But you, mortal, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. I looked, and a hand was stretched out to me, and a written scroll was in it. He spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back, and written on it were words of lamentation and mourning and woe. He said to me, O mortal, eat what is offered to you. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, Mortal, eat this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it, and in my mouth it was as sweet as honey. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Empathy. I don't consider myself a person with a great memory, but one of the things that I will never forget is something that my mom did to me when I was just becoming a teenager. I was throwing an absolute fit. I'm sure this was rare. Uh, I was upset. I don't even remember what I was upset about, but I remember being inconsolate. And I was crying. I was desperate. I couldn't, something wasn't working right. I felt under too much pressure or something. And I just thought, oh, nobody has suffered like I have. And if I had been able to diagnose myself at that time, I would say clinically de uh, depressed, George Hinman. But my mother had a different appraisal. In her mind, I was wrestling with nothing more than self-pity. And so what I remember is, uh, in our, we were in our front hallway, and she, she goes, George, that's it. And she goes in the closet, pulls her coat out, grabs her car keys uh, off the bureau, opens the front door. And I said, where are you going? She says, where are we going, George? We are going to Children's Hospital. So Children's Hospital, yeah, I want to show you people who really are suffering. And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go to Children's Hospital. She said, nope, we're going. She grabs my wrist, and she pulls me, and I'm going like, like this on, the, uh, on, the, on both sides of the door. I was not always honoring my parents as a boy. I do now, totally, but then. <laughs> what she was doing was reframing my perspective. I was literally crushing myself under a burden of self-absorption. And she wanted to rescue me from the weight of that self-absorption by making me aware of the needs of the people right around me and the pain of their lives. That's empathy. And it's a gift not only to those people who receive our empathy, but it's a gift to those of us who exercise empathy. And I want to argue that God reveals himself through empathy to us and to our neighbors. He's recognizable in the midst of that simple gesture. See, I think that's what God is offering Ezekiel in this moment when he says, Ezekiel, open your mouth. And it's a strange story of ingesting a scroll. But here there's a figure in chapter 1 in the midst of this very strange but beautiful scene of glory sitting on a throne like a human being whose hand now extends to Ezekiel and says, eat this. Don't just take it into your mouth. You take it into the depths of your stomach. There's writing on both sides. Now, I used to think, and you may want to argue with me on this, but I used to think that God was giving Ezekiel here his marching orders, his message. You know, he's preparing him for his prophetic work. And it must be that the words that Ezekiel is supposed to proclaim are on that scroll. 
I don't think so now. Reason I, I think that for two reasons. One is in, in verse four and following, we actually get the words that he's supposed to proclaim. The Lord says, "Here's what you're supposed to say." But in the eating of the scroll, something else is going on. The other reason I think it's not his message is that he's actually told, we're told, what the words are that are on the scroll. It's filled with words, and the words are lamentation, mourning, and woe. And what are those? Emotions. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. Deep sadness. Now, is that Ezekiel's experience? We don't know that. But we do know, as we read the book, that it will be the emotional experience of those to whom Ezekiel is sent. God is going to call him to a people who are out of connection with the God who loves them and wants to bless them. And their experience in the midst of that will be lamentation and mourning and woe. And God says, before you're ready to go, I don't have a message for you. I have an emotional experience for you. I want your own heart to resonate with those to whom I send you. I want you to feel what your neighbors feel. And that's empathy. The Greek words that underlie our English word empathy are it's the word in or em and pathema, the word suffering. In suffering. It's when you take within yourself the suffering of somebody else. It's when you have the courage to step into the circle of somebody else's pain and stand there wordless, perhaps, beside them and feel what they feel in the moment of their joy or in the moment of their despair. That's, that's empathy. And that's where God begins with this prophet, and that's where God will begin with us as a prophetic community. Age 24, there was another priest in training in Belgium in uh, 1863. His name was Damien. And he was sent from Belgium to Hawaii. You know, not a bad assignment, you know. Uh, how do I get that gig? But as he was there, he was set over a number of districts as a supervisor in the church. One of his districts was Molokai. At the time, the Hawaiian government, and you may know this if you've been to Hawaii, was using Molokai, what? As a settlement for lepers. People we would call, uh, who were diagnosed with what we call now uh, Hansen's disease. Horrible disease. And when Damien was ordained in Hawaii and became Father Damien and began to ask himself, where can I go and what can I do that will most disclose the heart of my Savior Jesus Christ? His answer came to him as Molokai and this settlement. And he joined the, the leper colony and he helped them build their buildings and he helped them dress their wounds. There was no resident physician there, but a resident priest began to minister God's grace to these lepers. He built their coffins, he dug their graves, and he knew the one thing he must never do is touch them. But he knew that he worshipped a Savior who touched lepers, and he couldn't resist himself. And, and until the most effective day of his ministry was that day that he could come for morning devotions among those lepers and stand before them and say, we lepers, because he had joined them. He had stepped into their pain. Their pain was now his pain. And in him, they could see the heart of God as he revealed himself through Father Damien's empathy. So Paul says in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice 
and mourn with those who mourn. That's our mandate. I want to give you two practical uh, implications, two practical action steps that you can do. Through this whole series, we're trying to be very practical as we go out and give witness to Jesus Christ. And, and I want to give you these two. And the first one is to get to know your neighbors. To empathize with your neighbor, it seems so simple, but you're going to have to get to know them. And maybe you know your neighbors, but you know what? A lot of us don't. That's what we're told by pollsters. In 2010, Pew Research did a study that showed that 28% of Americans do not know one neighbor. 28% of Americans couldn't name a neighbor. And then also, there were only 19% of Americans who knew all their neighbors. It was just the people that lived contiguous with where they lived. Uh, I want to give you a little tool. It's Jay Pathak is a guy who came up with this instrument, uh, this idea. It's just a tic-tac-toe diagram. But you might want to draw it on your bulletin and take it home with you. I want you to put your house or your apartment right in the middle square. That's where you live. Land your flying saucer right there. And then I want you to write in each of the adjacent boxes the names of your neighbors. So go around the different apartments that are around you, the townhouse uh, or, the, or the homes that are where, where you live, and put, see if you can, how many of those you can fill in. Can you get them all? Your assignment this week is to get them all. You do whatever you have to do in, or, in order to get every single one of those names. And if you want extra credit, here's, here's what you do for extra credit. Next to each name, you write down one thing that each of those people value. So you're going to have to get them to know them that well. It's something that they value. Write that down. You bring it back next week, and everyone who does gets a $100 bill as, as you come into worship next week. No, I'm just, just kidding. Uh, but you've got to know your neighbors in order to begin to empathize with them. Who are they? What do they care about? Now, who is your neighbor? I like Daryl Guter's answer to that question. It's the person you have to deal with. That's who your neighbor is. And he gets that definition from Jesus, who tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He says there are these three guys, and there's a guy who's hurting in the road. And, and which one of them is a neighbor? Well, it's the guy that doesn't walk around. There are two guys who walk around the neighbor. The neighbor is simply the person in front of you in the road. It is the person that you buy your coffee from in the morning. It's the person that you walk by as panhandling. It may not be a geographical neighbor. Maybe it's someone in your virtual neighborhood. Maybe it's a family member. You know, some of you school kids might want to use that grid and, and lay out your classroom that way. And in each of the desks to sit around the desk to you are. What do you know about those people? You've got to get to know them in order to have empathy. Second thing that uh, we have to do to empathize with our neighbor is to listen to their feelings. No one is listening uh, these days. If you read the Atlantic magazine, you'll see there's an article in this current issue, the May issue that just arrived, uh, and it's fascinating. It's, it's also terrifying. Jaron Lanier is quoted in there. Jaron Lanier is the guy at uh, Microsoft that invented social networks, and he, he says in here, empathy is leeching away in our culture today. And the writer of the essay says something also interesting. He says, you know, we right now have an epidemic of narcissism and loneliness. That's really interesting. He says that those two things are two sides of the same coin. Narcissism and loneliness. Narcissism, preoccupation with only my feelings. And, and loneliness, the idea that nobody cares about my feelings. Two sides of the same coin. And that's where we're living today. In, in, in 2010, the AARP did a survey of adults over 45 years old. 35% of us are chronically lonely. Ten years ago, it was just 20% of us. Just ten years ago. 
Hoover Institution in 2010 did, did their own study. And uh, they found that in the late 1940s, there were 2,500 clinical psychologists in America. Today, we have 77,000. In the late 1940s, there were 30,000 social workers in America. Today, we have nearly 600,000. In the late 1940s, there were 500 marriage and family therapists in America. Today, there are more than 50,000. And you know what I say? Thank God there are, because these are the only people that are listening right now in our culture. We don't listen uh, to one another. And so, of course, we feel isolated. I was listening to a call-in radio show, and there's a woman probably desperate for someone to listen, and she actually called the, the phone-in line and recorded this little story, and she said she wanted to tell everybody about how she had been uh, carjacked. And I got carjacked, and the guy wanted to take me to ATM uh, machines, but I actually had overdrawn my account the month before because my rent has gone up, and I'm not making enough money, and so I put my car in the machine, and it sucked up the card, and then I didn't have the car, and I told him this story, and then I thought, well, he's probably going to rape me, and I said, oh, no, please don't rape me. I don't want to carry that baggage into my next relationship because I just lost my therapist, and I'm looking to, trying to get a new therapist, but none of the insurance will carry that there. She's just going on and on and on. And finally, the guy just opens the door and jumps out of the car and runs away. And the police goes, hey, that's really great the way you humanized yourself for that guy. She goes, humanized? I don't know what he's talking about. But she didn't even have to do a police lineup. They caught the guy, and they brought him into the courtroom. And as soon as he came in, he laid eyes on her. He rolled his eyes. And he identified himself right there. Just talking, talking, talking. And maybe the reason the world is not really listening to the church these days is because we're talking so much. And we're listening so little. I got a little cartoon that I, I wanted to show you. This, it's a desert island. It's a guy on the island. Opens up the bottle. Pulls out the note. It's from us, you know? We're just talking to ourselves, and nobody else is listening. Yes, we open our mouth all the time, but not like Ezekiel, to eat. To eat the emotional experience of our neighbors. To care about what they care. And you know, you've heard it said before, nobody cares what you know until they know how much you care. And Ezekiel's being sent this way, and so are we. And I want to suggest, it's not enough just to listen, but to listen for feelings. Because no matter how cerebral your neighbor is, no matter how intelligent you are, you live your life in your heart, in your feelings. And God wants a heart connection to us and our neighbors. And so be a listener that surfaces feelings. When's the last time you listened to the feelings of your teenager? When's the last time you listened to the feelings of your coworker? Or you're at a social occasion and some person makes a snide comment about his wife and you realize, wow, that was kind of toxic. But you know what? Beneath that, there's pain and hurt. And are you able to acknowledge that and to create space for it and surface it and say, wow, you're really, your heart's really heavy, aren't, isn't it? That's listening for their feelings. So these two disciplines, getting to know our neighbors and then listening for their feelings, will allow us to empathize with our neighbors. And I think that's the space in which God will reveal his heart. Because ultimately, we find out as the story continues into the New Testament, that God's heart is an empathizing heart. He cares about what's on your mind, what you're carrying, your burdens. And I think Ezekiel, he points to Jesus Christ. Jesus is recognizable in the ministry of Ezekiel and this community. And he points in exactly the same way that you and I will be pointing this week as we engage in empathy. Remember, he's a priest. And the priests in Jerusalem used to eat the sacrifices. It was a way of identifying with the people. They'd bring the meat. Priests would eat it uh, after they had offered it. 
They identify with the sins because they're sinful, the priests, just like the people are. But God takes and makes atonement uh, for their sins. In the same way, we're a community, we're sinful, there's nothing special about us. But we identify with those to whom Christ has sent us, and we point to Jesus, the perfect high priest. One scholar named Odell writes, When Ezekiel eats the scroll, he takes on himself the fate of his people, in much the same way that ingesting sacrifices would have allowed him to identify with the dangers of their everyday lives. What Ezekiel eats is not the message of divine judgment, but the judgment itself. He takes it upon himself. And in doing that, he gives witness to the presence of Jesus Christ, whom we know as one who, as the writer of Hebrews again says, shares the flesh and blood of his children. And and he is the one who, uh, of which uh, the writer writes, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. He's a man of sorrows. He's a man of our sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He's acquainted with our grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And it's it's in this way that you and I have been made whole. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. Do you see that God has stepped into the pain of this world to stand beside you, to stand beside me, to stand beside your neighbor? And as we do so, in some simple ways, we give witness to his presence. And the outcome of that will not be sad even in the midst of grief. It will be sweet. That's why this passage ends the way it is. It does. Where Ezekiel says, Then I ate it, the scroll, and in my mouth it was as sweet as honey. Why? Because then he knew he was in the presence of his Savior. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our hearts are heavy and broken and anxious today. And yet, thank you for the freedom you offer us, that in coming to stand beside us, you lift from us our cares, and you give us enough freedom to begin to reach out to those around us and share their burdens as well. And as we do that, our hearts resonate, not only with theirs, but with yours. We take on your empathy, and we're encouraged, and it's sweet. So commission us with this faith, that we might be your people in the world today. Invite us to see those neighbors and to know what it is that we can do to come alongside of them in your love, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Eleven years ago, my husband was diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer. He was given less than a year to live. But God had different plans, and um, through great medical teams and uh, multiple chemos, surgeries, radiations, he was able to live for about 10 years. Last spring, it was pretty clear there were no longer any treatment options available for him. And at about that time, uh, the Love Your Neighborhood project was happening. Bill, my husband, was feeling a little overwhelmed with uh, all the things that he needed to do around the house and really wanted um, to sort of get some things going. And a friend of mine called about the Love Your Neighborhood Project and said her group was wondering if they could come help. And at first I thought, no, because um, I didn't see us as needy. But then a second friend contacted me and I thought, well, maybe, but still probably no. And then a third person contacted me and I realized it was 
maybe something a little bigger was going on. So we arranged to have these three groups come to our house, and they worked really, really hard. They um, did a lot of yard work and um, some excavation so we could do some electrical and plumbing work, and it really jump-started um, some of the projects Bill wanted done. A couple of interesting things that followed from that were our neighbors. People would come up to me, total strangers, and say, who are all those people at your house? What was going on? And it turned out they were not really total strangers in that they lived on my street, and I got to meet them and chat with them and just talk to them about our church and the, the sense of community that our church uh, has and, and, you know, people being the hands and feet of Christ. Bill died in July, and about a week before he died, I could no longer take care of him at home. So we were in the hospital, and we had probably more conversation time because of that. Um, and I was feeling very overwhelmed. Um, I was about to become a single mom. Our oldest was going to go to college. Um, and I was losing my best friend, and that was just a very difficult time. Um, and. I just was a little panicky, um, and I think Bill really sensed that, and he um, was able to just look at me and, and try to reassure me about me being okay, and one, one of the things he told me was that he really felt like the um, work day at our house was sort of a culmination of Christ's community and, and the support that I would continue to have um, through what we saw um, as a family and, and the church's help. Um, so that was a, a sprinkle of hope both for me and for Bill. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you care about our neighbors and our neighborhoods. We're grateful that you knock on the door of our hearts and call us to follow you into places of brokenness and pain. We thank you that you call us to come as we are. We thank you that you can work through our limitations, thank goodness, and that you, your power is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, we pray for your peace and healing in Syria, where the ceasefire has failed this week. Lord, we lift up the community of Sanford, Florida, in the wake of the Trevon Martin shooting. We pray for Jesus' love and grace to be a salve to heal the bitterness of division and bring understanding. We pray that you would be calling your people to be leaders and ministers of love and reconciliation in these broken communities. Lord, I pray for my neighborhood, the Capitol Hill neighborhood. We thank you that right now you are calling your people on Capitol Hill, in Roanoke, Montlake, Madison Park, Madison Valley, Madrona, all these neighborhoods, to serve the homeless at the YWCA Transitional Housing. We pray for this place of transitional housing as a place of refuge and hope that you have given these homeless families. We thank you for the opportunity to meet these families and to hear their stories. We pray that as we serve you, you would give us your eyes to see, your ears to hear, and your heart to understand those that we serve. 
We pray for your blessing on the fruits, the fruit trees, the berries, and the vegetables in the garden that we'll be planting for the food bank. We pray that the produce from the garden will be abundant and an encouragement to those that will be receiving it. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us so we can see our neighbors as Christ sees them. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us to hear our neighbors as Christ hears them. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us to love our neighbors as Christ loves them. Lord, bless us, make us open and alert to share our hope in you, our hope for your kingdom, the kingdom for which you taught us to pray with the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
to be sent out into the world to love our neighborhoods. We are on the launch pad. The countdown has begun. But before you go, why not either come down front for some confidential prayer or head up to Larson Hall to meet our new, uh, uh, the newest aliens on the ship uh, and enjoy a little bit of food and fellowship with one another. Uh, But I would uh, ask you uh, uh, to indulge me for a moment, and if you're willing to and able to, turn towards one of the portals through which you uh, entered today, because it's through those portals that we will now now go out and and discover ourselves to be uh, the people of God. So would you rotate around and face one of the doors in the back of the room or the sides of the room if you're in the balcony and hear these words? You go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being there. Christ who indwells you has something he wants to do through you where you are. Believe this and go in his spirit's grace, love, and power. And all God's people said, Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.